Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 193 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Inner Glow, an interview with Katie DePaolo. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Zabatello. Now, we've talked about heroes on this podcast, and we've talked about superheroes on this podcast, and we've distinguished those two in that a hero is someone who will help someone else without expecting anything in return on a one-off fashion. Superheroes are people who determine something unique about themselves and then turn that into something that is scaled to help the entire community. And Candy DePaolo actually uses the term inner glow as a way of defining who a superhero is. But she's doing something that we haven't seen before, and that is she's actually teaching people how to be superheroes, how to use their experiences, what they've learned from their experiences, and then become life coaches. Rich, if one thing was clear when we first started this podcast interview is that Katie was going to get better. She started treating with one of the best Lyme doctors, Dr. Jemsek. And then when she realized she hit a plateau, she pivoted over to another great Lyme doctor and used the Cowden protocol. And then after that, she pivoted to another great Lyme doctor and used IV lipids and hydrogen peroxide to get her where she is today in remission. Now, the real beauty of the story, at least in my view, is that Katie really didn't become this brilliant entrepreneur until she went on her Lyme journey. In fact, it was her Lyme disease journey that allowed her to develop the tools that she is now using to help everyone else in this community, in the chronic illness community generally, and in the coaching community. So Matt, I'm really excited to introduce Katie DePaolo. Hey, Katie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to be here. And we are really excited to be here too. And nobody's ever given us a woohoo to start the podcast. So we can tell this is going to be a unique experience for our community in Tick Bootcamp. So Katie, uh, can you share with us where you uh, live now and where you grew up? Sure. I grew up in Maryland and I still live in Maryland. I've lived a lot of other places, but right now I live in Bethesda right outside of Washington, D.C. So talk to us about what your childhood was like. What was it like growing up in Maryland? Sure. I mean, it's probably not the most exciting place to grow up, but it's not the least exciting place to grow up either. I mean, I was, I come from a good family. I grew up in a family business. Like we have, I have over 30 cousins and we have a big family Italian on one side. And so I grew up with a lot of family time and a lot of activity and playing a lot of sports and very involved and being outside a lot. And running through the woods with my friends and um, all those things that, you know, kind of represent a quintessential childhood. Okay. So talk to us about the family business that you had uh, and what that overlay meant to you growing up. Sure. So my great grandfather had started a fencing company out, out of a abandoned Metro bus in DC. And so he was, you know, running a business and then, Um, using my grandfather's money that he was sending home while he was in the merchant Marines to fund the business. My grandfather comes home, realizes that's what the money he's been sending home has been being used for. His dad wants to shut down the business. And he says, look, if you're going to shut it down, let me buy it from you. So he then buys the business that he's sort of been funding already. And he went and grew the business to, you know, a really successful, multi-generational remodeling company that is still thriving today. So talk to us about what impact growing up in this entrepreneurial family had on you as a child. I mean, what kinds of things did you see and what impact did that have on your goals and your dreams as you were growing up? Yeah, I think in terms of goals and dreams, 
there were a couple things. I mean, one was I didn't want to be part of the family business. And I was very clear about that, even though I, you know, would answer the phones in the summer and work there to make money. Um, and I was very driven to make money. Like I, my grandfather grew up very poor. My dad didn't grow up with money. So we had a lot as kids, like, you know, we went to private schools and had nice clothes and there was always food on the table and all of that, but that wasn't historically how it had been in my family. So even though we had a lot, our parents and grandparents were very much about work hard, stay focused. You know, my granddad used to always say like, don't let the money run out, you know, don't, don't, don't get ahead of yourself. And I think that built a lot of character inside of me because even though my struggles weren't financial, like I don't have a rags to riches story myself. I have a sick to healthy story and a, um, you know, an ongoing journey of staying healthy, both physically and mentally. And I think that what I learned from my family in terms of, um, taking giving off, giving up off the table and staying in the game, whatever game you're in was incredibly, you know, formative for me. Let's talk about this context. So you have this large Italian American family, you spend a lot of time together, you have this family business and that family business has given you on some level uh, privilege where you went to private school and you had all that you needed. So let's talk about that privilege for a moment and whether or not it prepared you for what you needed to be prepared for in the short term. And what I mean by that is, what do you know about ticks and tick diseases while you were running around the woods with all your cousins and your extended family? And uh, did you learn anything about ticks and tick diseases either from your extended family, your, your, your nuclear family, or in this privileged private school education you received? You know, Rich, that's a very simple answer. The answer is no. <laughs> I knew nothing. And it wasn't something that we talked about. I mean, we knew like ticks were bad, but I have a distinct memory now of going to my dad when I was 17 years old. It was the summer before I left for college and showing him like a, a rash on my leg and him saying, it'll be fine in the morning. Like I also come from a family that's very much like, you're fine. You're fine. You're not sick. Go to school. Stop complaining. Let's go. Right. And so I think it's interesting because I, I recently got engaged and congratulations. Thank you. And my fiance's family is like very attuned to sickness. Like they're like, if something's wrong, you go to the doctor. And my family's like the complete opposite. Like you don't go to the doctor. Like, and so I was, once I started to experience symptoms, which I know we'll get to, I was really on my own. I was really on my own. So let's talk about the upside and the downside to growing up in an entrepreneurial family. Despite being this close family, this traditional Italian-American family where everybody's together and everyone's in everyone's business, you're also sort of being told to suck it up, right? Tough it out. You have to work through it. You, have to, you can't let the money run out, right? So you were sort of built at least culturally to fight through everything because you couldn't let the money out and you had to take care of everything, right? Right. 
And I think there's also a lot of like self-responsibility that I was taught. Like now I, I live and work in the coaching world and it's all about taking responsibility for your life and taking- so That's the upside though, Katie, right? Let's talk about the downside though. We're not at the upside yet. We're going to get there. Let's talk about the downside to that, right? So this sort of suck it up culture had an impact on you, right? Because you showed signs of what you now know to be um, your, your tick disease very early on. And if you weren't from this suck up culture- you might've gotten diagnosed early on. Right. But that's what I'm saying is that you can take this self-responsibility to an extreme. And, you know, what happens is we start to blame ourselves and think like I'm causing this, or this is my fault, or I've done something wrong. I also grew up in a very Catholic family. So I think there was like a lot of Catholic guilt there. And so a lot of this was very, um, you know, kind of imprinted in my brain that, it was my response. My health was my responsibility and there was no outer influence. And now I call complete BS on that. So talk to us about when you first started to show the symptoms of what you now know to be your tick disease. Sure. I was 17 years old. I had just gone to college. I went to Vanderbilt. I, you know, which is a very preppy school in uh, Nashville, Tennessee very wealthy school. And I was, you know, trying to fit in, go to parties. I wanted to join the sorority. I was like, you know, very much in my world that was very small. And I started to feel a lot of pain, just like a lot of physical aches and pains all over. And I went to the campus nurse and um, I also had like some respiratory symptoms. I went to the campus nurse and they checked me out and they diagnosed me with mono. And they said, you have mono, you have the kissing disease. Like this is what happens when a lot of people go come to college. They go to too many parties and kiss too many boys. And I think I had only kissed like one boy, but. Um, okay, Katie. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, so I'm like, okay, here again, like here, this is my fault, right? Like I'm having too much fun at college. I got myself sick. This is my fault. And I felt very, again, responsible, but to an extreme, like I'm doing something wrong here. So Let, let's pause there for a second, Katie. So, um, you went to college, went to Vanderbilt, one of the top schools in the country, right? Yeah. Division one athletic program. So really powerful college experience. And what were your goals when you went to Vanderbilt? Meaning what did you think you were going to do when you graduated? I don't, I really don't think I knew. I mean, I am sort of one of those people that's like, I'm very spiritual and I feel very guided. And um, I was probably looking for, signs, you know, probably hoping that something struck me or stuck out to me, but I started ma by majoring in communication. So I, I think I thought I was going to like move to New York city and work at a marketing firm or, you know, become some big executive at a company like that. And, um, you know, I wanted to get a good education to be able to do that, but I ended up switching my major to human and organi organizational development which I think prepped me for a lot of what I do today. So your goal, at least in part, was not to work in the family business and to develop the educational tools you needed to move in another direction. You go to college, you get sick, 
And now you go to seek help from a medical professional and the medical professional essentially gaslights you, right? Right. And of course, the foundation that you brought with you from this Italian Catholic entrepreneurial family, the sort of suck it up kind of uh, mentality that you went with caused you to see, quite frankly, the same thing that you, from the nurse, the same thing that you saw when you were growing up, right? Yeah, exactly. And there wasn't a lot of like, you know, empathy there. I never felt really hurt by the medical community ever. I always felt, you know, I remember she like, she said, you have mono and she gave me a Z pack. Like, okay, you know, that should take care of it, but it didn't take care of it. Okay. But so this is your first experience living on your own, seeking medical care yourself. This wasn't in the context of your parents taking you to a doctor. And instead of getting a different experience when you went to college, you got the same kind of experience you had gotten before, right? So now, now you move forward and you say, hey, I'm not feeling well. This z pack didn't work for me. What'd you do? I just like slept a lot, right? Like I just, I was at that point where I didn't have a lot of control and I was far away from home for the first time ever. I didn't know how to express to my family what was going on. I started to feel that it was, you know, it was in my head. I was imagining it, right? I didn't really understand. I couldn't even for myself distinguish the symptoms enough to be able to say, here are all the things I'm experiencing and here's how it's impacting me. I just felt so blah. I remember walking across campus and feeling like, I feel like I'm like 80 years old. Like this must be like what it physically feels like when you're 80 years old. And, you know, I, I had trouble waking up. I had trouble going to sleep. Once I wanted to go to sleep, my mind was racing. Like it was so many things. And I started to feel quite crazy. Now, why did you feel crazy? Did you feel crazy because the medical community was telling you there was nothing wrong with you? Did you feel crazy because um, you you didn't look like there was anything wrong with you? Did you feel crazy because your parents are telling you, just suck it up, move forward? What what, What were the pieces that brought you to this place where you doubted that you were really sick when you were in fact sick? Uh, it's all of those things. I mean, it was certainly the medical community and the lack of answers. You know, you grow up as a kid thinking that doctors are like God, like doctors have the answers. And so if doctors or nurses don't have the answers, then there are no answers, right? Like it was very confusing to me. Like my brain couldn't make sense of what was going on. The other thing was I didn't know how to express myself. I didn't know how to say what I was feeling. And like, this is something I still struggle with today because, you know, it, it changes you, but I didn't know how to say what was going on in my body, like what my symptoms were or what, what my, what my brain was experiencing. Like it was just on overload and I couldn't process it and I couldn't compartmentalize it. So eventually I started taking a lot of notes to try to categorize everything. But at the time, it just was like this experience of blah and not knowing where to put all the things I was going through. So Carrie, let's talk about now your four years at college because it started right as you started college. How did your developing, how did your developing symptoms impact you academically? 
there were a few times where, you know, my Lyme was um, something that affected me and then didn't affect me and then affected me and then didn't affect me, or at least it seemed so I'm sure it was affecting me the whole time, but I had peaks and valleys. And so that was the other thing that played a lot of tricks on my brain was like, I would think I was totally fine, totally in the clear, whatever thing I had is gone. And I'd go out and party or go to the bars or, you know, be involved with charity events or whatever I was doing. I remember one time in college, I trained, I was training for a half marathon and I, you know, I was training and I felt really strong. And then like, one day I was running and I just couldn't move. Like I couldn't run anymore. And that's the kind of stuff that in my opinion messes with your head because it like the brain needs to make sense of things, right? Things need to make sense. And when they don't make sense anymore, like I could run seven miles yesterday but I can't run two today. Like it just wasn't adding up. And that was what made me feel like something was wrong with me and something was wrong, but it wasn't wrong in like, my mind, it was actually physically wrong and it was affecting everything. So when you say everything, how was your developing symptomology impacting you socially at college? I think, you know, I, I dealt with a lot of uh, mental health stuff. Like I dealt with a lot of anxiety and a lot of depression, but I think beyond that, the biggest thing was, especially at Vanderbilt, like to me, the people there were like superhuman like they would be out partying till like two, three, four in the morning and then be up like looking gorgeous for an 8 a.m. class. And I like couldn't functionally do that. I remember having that thought of like something's really wrong with me if this is the norm. And I was just looking at the people around me, which like at Vanderbilt, like, you know, my 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 like fantasy or thought of college when I was in high school was like, I'm going to wear sweatpants to class and I'm going to just like do what I want to do. And we're just all going to hang out. And Vanderbilt was like, no, you do not wear sweatpants. You dress up for everything. Like it was very Southern. It was very traditional. And I just didn't have the energy. And like, I still struggle with that today because my energy levels are, you know, affected, but back then it was horrible. Like they were like operating at, you know, a thousand percent. And I was at like 20%. And I felt so left out is probably a good way to say it. And just really, really like something is wrong. Something is wrong. Now, did you think there was something wrong with you that you had to overcome? Or did you think you were just not well prepared for the Vanderbilt experience? Or did you think that Vanderbilt had all these superhumans and you just weren't one of them? How did your mind rationalize the difference between you and everyone else? I place a lot of the judgment and blame on myself. So I think it's more like the third thing. Like I was like, these people are superhuman and I'm clearly not, and I don't belong here. And this is going to be really challenging. Like I ended up leaving Vanderbilt for a year because it was so stressful for me. So um, talk to us about how you were interacting with your parents during this window of time. What were you saying to them and what were they saying to you about your health and the challenges that you were facing as a student at Vanderbilt? You know, I don't have a lot of very clear memories of that, but what I do remember is being really mad at them, like being very angry and like not being very nice to them and being very short with them and not understanding why I felt so angry at them. 
right? Because like, for me, like the way I look back on things, like I don't feel it was their fault, but they also were my parents. And so what I learned about parents growing up was like, they're supposed to fix things. And like, they weren't fixing, they weren't understanding, they weren't, um, I felt like they weren't helping me. And so therefore I was very angry at them. So now you don't get diagnosed until you're 26. So that was, you graduate from college, uh, you begin, you know, life, um, post-college life. Um, how do things go for you after you graduated from college? Well, I'm me. So I'm like, you know, a hyper overachiever. So I decide to leave Vanderbilt and I graduate, but I, I leave Vanderbilt and I move to New York City. So I'm like, okay, you couldn't dominate in that sphere, but maybe if you go up north, you can crush it, you know? Right. So I'm like, oh, I'm just more of a northern girl. And if I can just like get myself into a different city in a different high performing, high achieving environment, everything will be fine. So that was my solution. All right. So have that work for you, Katie. Your Lyme disease symptoms are developing. You go from one high achieving environment to another. You go from the small pond to the big pond and have that work out for you. Yeah, it worked out so great. Um, it it came with a lot of challenges. Like I, I, I do feel that I fit better up north than in the south. Um, so I think I was right about that. But, you know, I continued to struggle and I continued to um, chase health. And I think what I remember about New York was like, I started to explore some things that were more alternative. And so I started to put some positive things into the pot, the healing pot, but I still had a lot of what for me were very detrimental behaviors. So like, I remember going out and like drinking with my friends. And then the next day I would like fast, but like drink green juice. Right. And so I was trying to like rebalance my system. And I thought that I just needed more green juice. Like that was the answer, you know? And I had, I had seen an acupuncturist when I was in college at one point and she had advised me a lot around my diet. And so I had learned a lot about food and what foods triggered my system. And I didn't know what they were triggering. I just knew that I felt bad, right? Like I knew that gluten made me feel bad and dairy made me feel bad. So I got better at managing those things once I was out of the college environment and felt like I had a little bit more control over where I ate and who I spent time with and, and things like that. But it was still like a blind struggle, right? Like I was away from home. They didn't know what I was experiencing. I was trying to figure it out on my own because I am very independent, but I, I, I was not reaching any solutions at all. So Katie, between the time that you first started um, to discover your symptoms at 17 and the time that you were diagnosed at 26, how many different doctors did you seek help from in that window? Like 20, like if you use the word doctor loosely, like if you include like acupuncturists and nutritionists and, you know, people like that, then I would say like 30. So why were you going from doctor to doctor or, or practitioner to practitioner? Because you knew something was wrong and you couldn't get an answer. So you just kept trying one thing after another to stay active. Yeah. 
you so, know, and I also had a, an experience in, um, in college where I don't know if you guys want me to tell this story or not, but I'm sure um, we do. I was, I talk about this in my book. I was going to, I was on the way to beach week. So it was my senior year of college and a week prior, I had been in one of my women's studies classes because I was doing a minor in women's studies and they were passing out these pamphlets on like going to get STD tested. And, you know, obviously like Vanderbilt was a work hard, play hard environment. And I got a group of my girlfriends and I was like, I think you guys really need to go get STD tests. Like I thought they needed to get STD tests, right? So I'm like, I'll go with you for moral support. And you know what? I'll get one too. And so we go to Planned Parenthood and we get like free STD testing. And I'm thinking, okay, my friends are totally going to get a call. Like, you know, they've been too wild their senior year. Like they're totally, something's going to come up here. So we're driving to beach week. We're going to Destin, Florida. And I am in the car with a bunch of girls. We're like in a minivan that we rented and I, you know, we've got booze in the back and bikinis and we're ready to party. And I get a, a call and, and she's like, you know, I'd like to speak with Miss DePaula. And I'm immediately like, this cannot be good. And she introduces herself and says she's from Planned Parenthood. And she says, we need you to come back in. You received a positive test. And long story short, I had tested positive for syphilis. And the reason I share this is because I didn't end up having syphilis. They ran a second test. It was a false positive. But anytime I would go to the gynecologist, which is something you have to do as a woman, as a, you know, as a young woman and just a woman, I would get these positive tests for syphilis. So I'll just leave that there for now. But that became a clue on my journey. And that also became one of the reasons why I kept seeing different doctors because I wanted to understand why I was getting a false positive all the time when like, you're not supposed to get a false positive. And it to me was sticking out as one of the only things that was weird because every time I would get blood work and every time I would get any kind of assessment, they would say, you're so healthy, everything's perfect. And I didn't feel healthy and I didn't feel perfect. So that was just like added to all of my frustration and anger and upset and confusion like to feel so sick and then be told like you, your blood work is completely perfect. It's like, again, the brain just can't make sense of it. So Katie, but your brain is beginning to make sense of actions that you had to take in order to be able to heal, right? So you're going to practitioners and learning as much as you can from different types of practitioners, including alternative practitioners. And you're beginning to engage in lifestyle changes that will help you to heal, even though you don't have a diagnosis at that time. Correct. So give us a list of things that you were doing prior to getting a diagnosis that were helping you to heal, even though you didn't have a diagnosis. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think that a lot of these things I'm about to list off are why I'm not in a wheelchair today. Um, I, one was acupuncture and I saw quite a few different acupuncturists depending on where I was living at the time. I think that was another thing for me, like jumping around, living different places, not seeing the same doctors, like they couldn't see patterns. So every time I moved, I was starting over. Um, but acupuncture was huge. 
you know, I eliminated gluten from my diet, even though I, I, I don't have celiac disease, which is when you have a complete allergy to gluten. I knew that by removing it, just because I tested it, I felt better. So removing gluten from my diet was a huge thing. Removing dairy from my diet was a huge thing. Um, I had had a ton of stomach issues over the years and getting rid of those two things pretty much got rid of my stomach issues, which was, you know, very significant for my immune system. Um, exercise was important when I could do it at this point in my life that we're talking about college and after college, for the most part, I could still exercise but I remember like being on the elliptical, which is like sort of like the lamest exercise you can do and like no judgment, no judgment, but um, you know, feeling like I was going to fall asleep and I, you know, so exercise when I could do it. And then I think like I learned how to meditate during this period in my life. And I learned how to try to shut off some of that constant noise and constant chatter that was very helpful. I learned about certain supplements um, that were helpful to me. And, you know, I, I started reading a lot. Like I started reading a lot about nutrition and living a cleaner life and started to learn a little bit about, you know, toxicity in um, cleaning products or beauty products is a huge thing for, for women. And so I, I learned about toxicity, toxicity in the world, toxicity in our relationships, toxicity in our food and the products that we use. And I started to eliminate some of those things and do research around that. And that helped me with my symptoms, but it also gave me a sense of more control in a period of my life where I felt that I had no control. So you're laying the foundation for healing and you are learning about uh, the signals that your body is giving to you and what you should or shouldn't be doing, um, but you still don't have a diagnosis. So tell us how you ultimately got to a place where you were diagnosed with Lyme disease. Yeah. So New York became too much for me. There was a moment where I was at my last job in New York city and I had worked at a fashion internship and I had been an assistant for, um, you know, a woman who was the executive at a consulting firm. And I had been running around the city doing different things. And, and my third job was, uh, working at a marketing company. And I, I one day called my dad, I locked myself in the office bathroom, called my dad. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And at the time I thought like, I just was bored and unstimulated and tired of making sales calls and all of that. But, you know, what I realized now was like my body was failing me too. And I also probably had become quite depressed because I didn't know how to be a healthy person, which was what I, all that I wanted. So I moved home from New York and moved into DC, like got my own place, but moved into DC. And I, you know, kept experiencing the same things like being fine and then not being fine. The way that this all reached a breaking point was when I went to my brother Johnny's college graduation 
and between the travel and some things that were going on in our family with my youngest brother and the stress of all of it, along with what was going on in my body, I started to lose feeling in the entire right side of my body. And at this point, I had done enough research, and by research, I mean Googling, to know through the process of elimination that probably I had Lyme disease. And you had a number of immune disrupting events going on in your life. uh, And although you were able to manage your disease, um, the undiagnosed Lyme disease at that time, because you were making lifestyle changes, you were making various different smart health related decisions, you had immune disrupting events that came together and you crashed, right? You crashed. And the crash caused you to further your research and you came to the conclusion that you might have Lyme disease. So what did that do for you? What did you do once you came to the conclusion that you may have Lyme disease? I had read, you know, I had seen this term LLMD and I had read that that was what I needed to find. And so I, again, took, you know, took to Google And I found an LLMD in Washington, DC. And I called to book an appointment and similar to you, like they wouldn't take me for, I think it was like six weeks. And at that point I was so terrified because I had read about, I was having paralysis go up my body and I could feel it like in my shoulder and starting to go up to my face. And I had read about facial paralysis And I had read that sometimes facial paralysis isn't reversible, that once that happens, it stays. And honestly, it sounds so vain, but that was like the thing that got me, like that really lit the fire that was like, this is like, this is the end, Katie. Like you have to do everything in your power to find someone who can help you, whatever it takes, however much money, you know, there was like a big deposit to even make an appointment. And I remember feeling so afraid of that, but also at the same time, knowing like, if you don't make a move, like if you keep thinking like you can just tough it out, you might be in a really bad place. And, you know, I didn't want to end up with facial paralysis. Like I didn't want to end up in a wheelchair. And I had started to read stories of of these kinds of things with people. And I, I, you know, you read these stories of like someone who starts you know, like basically like almost is like an Alzheimer's diagnosis, but they actually have Lyme disease. And, you know, you read these stories of like, well, first they had these symptoms and then they had these symptoms and they, that, and I was at like tier four of five. And so I realized like, okay, if you're at tier four and you're aware of this, like the only place to go is five if you don't get help. Right. So I had to like really, really get serious with myself and take the risk. So did you wait the six weeks to get in with this one litter doctor in Washington? No, because I'm, I was so motivated at this point. I made the appointment, I made the deposit. But in the meantime, when I got home from my brother's graduation, I went and saw just my regular doctor. And this is like, this, this part of the story is like so disappointing in my opinion, because it's so simple. 
but I went to my regular doctor, like the doctor that just like does your basic blood work, your basic physical, like basically make sure, make sure, sure you're still alive and you'll be alive for the next year. Right. That's like what they're good at. And I said, can you please test me for Lyme disease? Like, can you please just like add a Lyme panel? And they were like, yeah, like we really don't think you have Lyme, but like, sure. Right. And in that moment, I learned that like one, I could ask for what I wanted and, and they basically had to say yes to me. And I think that that was such an important lesson that I needed to get me through this next period I was about to embark on. But it was also so earth shattering because the test came back positive. And so after all these years of having no idea and being so confused and not knowing what was wrong with me, like no doctor had ever tested me for Lyme disease. They hadn't even done like a, a basic test. And the, you know, the test that um, my doctor ended up running was just like your basic Lyme panel. And I was positive. And so at that point, like I knew that I was positive for Lyme, which I understand some doctors still don't accept as Lyme disease. That's a whole nother issue. But I took that to the LLMD and, you know, that gave me a lot more confidence that what I was experiencing was real. Hey, did you do anything with your primary care doctor to treat or did you solely get your blood work done to bring to the specialist in Washington? No, I just got the blood work done, honestly, for my own sanity. And who is the specialist that you saw in Washington? I saw Dr. Jemsek. Yeah, we are very familiar with Dr. Jemsek. He's very, a very popular LLMD in the community. So yeah. walk us through what that was like going to Dr. Jemsek with these positive results that you got from your primary care physician and what was next? Yeah, so I, I remember going into their office and being like terrified. Um, and they had, you know, he had, he had an uh, assistant that was seeing me. And at this point, you know, I think Dr. Jemsek like kind of checks off on things, but um, I think he had so many patients that he wasn't able to give me um, much time, but I did, you know, trust the person that they, they had me see. And she looked through my symptomology and I remember I had to fill out a ton of paperwork and, you know, I think a lot of people can probably relate to this, but for me, filling out all of that paperwork was actually quite validating because it asks you really specific things that other doctors have never asked. And it helped me understand like more of a pathway. Like I remember writing out timelines of like, when I started to experience different things and understanding, okay, these symptoms might actually be connected. Like a lot of doctors will say nothing in your stomach is connected to your mental health. Right. But then now we know there's like this, you know, gut brain connection. So this was the first time that I started to feel like everything I'd been experiencing was not only legitimate and real and valid, but it was connected. And that maybe all the differing symptoms that felt like they were so random actually weren't so random and that they were all connected to something systemically going on inside of my body. So, you know, the first thing that they did was put me on sleeping pills. 
because they were like, your body is like, you have not been sleeping and nothing in our treatment is going to be effective enough if you don't start sleeping. And I come from a family that's very much like tough it out. You know, you shouldn't need things like that. But here was a doctor explaining what was going on with me and saying like, sleep is the foundation. And my intuition kicked in and I said like, that sounds right. You know, that sounds right that we need to work on sleep first. And so we started with that foundational piece and then they started me on a couple different, you know, treatment protocols. So Katie, I wonder earlier on in the interview, you mentioned that you had a hard time explaining your symptoms and how you felt and describing what was really going on. And I, I know I have experienced that same problem and many people in the Lyme community because of cognitive impairments can't properly express themselves to their doctors. So do you think that this questionnaire that Dr. Jemsek put together helped you overcome that hurdle to be able to put down on paper what was going on to then connect the dots that you weren't previously able to do before that? Yeah, I think between the questionnaire and the research I had done myself, I started to as I was doing research, I started to write down the symptoms that I was having, right? Like, because I was hearing other people's stories and I was like, oh, I have that. You know, I, I think I have memory loss because things seem foggy or I didn't know what brain fog was until I started to read about it. And that was a huge thing. I just kind of thought I was like getting stupid, you know? So it's like, we, we take responsibility for things. We think it's our fault or we think like, you know, I'm just having a bad day, but eventually you have so many days like that, that you have to start really cataloging it. So yes, between the questionnaire and, you know, those, the being prompted and being asked about certain specific things. And then also I had started just in the notes in my phone, writing down all my weird random symptoms. And I think it's so important for us to like be our own doctors and take notes. So Katie, what else did Dr. Jemsek's office do besides put you on sleeping medication, which it was critical for your body to start the healing process? Yeah. So they put me on an SSRI for the first time ever. And, um, you know, I think that that helped. Um, but that was a hard thing for me. Like taking an antidepressant was something that was a challenge for me mentally, like to accept that. Um, they put me on, they did like what's called pulse therapy with me. So they would put me on a protocol of antibiotics. I'd be on for two weeks and then off for a week. And they'd have me taking different supplements to supplement and strengthen my system. And, you know, I felt confident at this point I was at my rock bottom so it was sort of like, I'll try anything, right? Which is where I think a lot of people get. But I did know enough about alternative medicine that I felt that the fact that he was putting me on supplements and that he was concerned about my mental health and he was concerned about my sleep was a positive indicator that this might work. And I didn't really know what work meant at the time um, I remember Dr. Jemsek himself had told me, you're never going to get rid of the Lyme, but we can help you stabilize. And that to me was both encouraging and also quite discouraging. Like I'm someone who wants solutions and 
I didn't understand, like if people beat cancer, why wouldn't I be able to beat Lyme disease? Like, why wouldn't that be a possibility? So you had hope in this treatment protocol because it was addressing your mental health, your sleep problems and your depression while also treating the bacteria and virus itself that you had from probably Lyme and, and various co-infections. So walk us through what it was like when you started to get the post-antibiotic therapy and if you felt it was actually helpful in your healing journey. God, it's like so hard to say overall if it, if it was helpful or if a different route would have been better. But I guess for me, it was necessary because it was the only option I knew of at the time. So I had to do something and I had to interrupt the disease and the bacteria taking over my body. And so, you know, I think another thing that I learned from Dr. Jemsek that was quite life-changing for me was I remember him specifically saying, it's not just about killing the, the Lyme that's going to make you healthier. It's about how you detox it out of your body. And you remember that I loved green juices. So I knew so much about detoxing, but I, that was a word that I knew. And I, so then that prompted me to do more research and understand like what was physically happening in my body during a Herxheimer reaction. And I did, I Herxed really, really bad during my treatment with Gemsec, like really bad. But I became very committed to my detox protocol. And, you know, that's when I started to take a lot of Epsom salt baths. And when I started to try, you know, infrared saunas and I kept up the acupuncture and there was all this other stuff I was doing on the side to help, you know, what I hoped was speed up the healing and detoxification process to get this like monster out of my body. So Katie, detox is an important part of the Lyme healing journey, especially when you're aggressively treating like you are with this pulse therapy of antibiotics. So can you give us some specific examples of detox tools that you find work best for you? Yeah, I think um, Epsom salt baths helped a lot. I would do like binders. So, I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, really strong ones, but um, I would do like Mayan clay baths and um, wrap, like, I remember I would wrap my hands and feet in, in this like uh, activated clay and wrap it in saran wrap to help pull toxins out of my body. And like, you're doing this stuff and you're like, I don't know if this shit's working, but like, I feel like it is, right? But I would, I would feel better. Like I would have a real low from when I was herxing and then what happened was like, I almost started to experience like a high when I would really start to detox because I was feeling better than I ever had. And those moments, even if they only lasted a day or a few days, gave me so much hope because they started to give me this glimpse of possibility of like how I could feel, right? Like I'm actually, you know, they say like, it, it could get worse before it gets better. Right. And I'd feel this like, okay, it got, I went through treatment, it got worse and now I'm detoxing and it's getting better. And I went through treatment and it got worse. I'm detoxing and now it's even a little bit better than the last time. And so I felt like even if I'm getting 1% better, 
like eventually I could be a hundred percent better. Right. And so for me, like so much of this was about mindset and possibility. I talk so much about possibility in my work, but I had to like believe that it was possible that I could heal. And even though Dr. Jemsek told me that it wasn't possible, that I would never get rid of the Lyme, I actually, in my mind, overrode that because so many doctors had told me nothing was wrong with me. Here's a doctor who to me was like a miracle worker because he could diagnose me and he could start to treat me. But even he said, you can never get rid of the Lyme. And I said, you know what? Thank you for all of your treatment. And I will keep going with this. And I don't fully subscribe to that. Right. And so I had to keep believing that there was something more than whatever the person who was in front of me, who was my healer or my partner in the process in that moment was telling me. And that's where I feel like I became my own doctor. I became my own miracle worker. I became my own coach, my own, like, you know, I had to keep thinking like, well, what's actually possible? Like, is it possible? Like, you know, we used to think that we couldn't cure cancer and in some cases we can. So why can't I be a some case? And that was what kept me going. Hey, that was beautiful. So to follow up on that, I know you did see two other doctors after Dr. Jemsek. So although you were having success with the treatment and the detox, what caused you to now pivot from Dr. Jemsek to your next doctor? You know, I, and this is part of like memories being foggy. I'm sure I could go back in my records and get better information, but like, I think I was kind of done with GEMSEC. Like, I think they were kind of like, we did as much as we think we can. And um, this is kind of where it is. And I think I was like good for a little while. And I was good for a little while, probably a year until I wasn't again. And again, like, I don't know what caused me to um, go back in into like a, basically like a Lyme attack, but it was probably the fact that my brother had died and, um, you know, because there was yet another massive immune disrupting event, I basically felt like my body was under attack again. So at this point I had done even more research and I also had, had experienced some negative effects from all of the uh, antibiotics that I had been on. And I knew, like, I'm personally not a huge fan of antibiotics. Like, I know that they're necessary at some point, but I think that at least for me, they wipe out a lot of good stuff in my body. And I think that, um, you know, there were some medications that I got put on that weren't the best medications for me. And so I was really reluctant and hesitant to go back to him. And so I started to seek out another doctor and I found a naturopath, an ND who, um, you know, was willing to treat my Lyme and try another method. So do you think that in hindsight that the antibiotics, although they were very helpful in getting you that really good year, that they were really not enough to help you sustain you for the long run. And that's why when you had the stressors, the life stressors that you experienced, 
you then experience that crash again a year later. Yeah, I think they did harm to my body. I also think maybe they saved me. So it's tricky. I think it's a double-edged sword because we hear this all the time in the podcast where people get antibiotic treatment, they get much better, but then it becomes cyclical where they then relapse and get back in a position where they were years ago and get very sick again. So I think your experience is very similar to others where you got antibiotic treatment. It was a game changer for you, but then you had a relapse as soon as you had a stressor in your life and you were back to sort of square one, it sounds like. Exactly. So walk us through what the experience now is like with this naturopathic doctor versus seeing Dr. Jemsek, who primarily used antibiotics as a treatment protocol. Yeah. So I started seeing a naturopath and he put me on the Cowden protocol, which I understand to be um, a well-known herbal protocol within the Lyme community. And, you know, to me, he was just like handing me all these tinctures and like, you have to take these drugs. I mean, the schedule was insane. Like I remember going, leaving Gemsec with like this highlighted schedule of like, take this in the morning, take this in the afternoon, take this before bed, take this with dinner. Like, and being like, how am I ever going to manage this? Like, this is like so much. Right. And then I get the Cowden protocol and it's like worse. I need to be taking doses like eight times a day. So I was so overwhelmed. I remember just my mom had gone with me because at this point, finally, I was close to home and my parents were more involved with my treatment and really understood how much I was struggling. But I remember she made me like this cute, like line calendar of like when she thought, when we thought I would be done with treatment and different, you know, markers of, of my success along the way, because it sucks to go through something think you're going to be better, be better for a little while and then be bad again. Right. Like, it's just like, how come I can't get on top of this? Why can't I win? And, and at this point you've been sick for all these years. Right. So it's like, you really deserve to just like have a solution and have it be easy, but it wasn't like that. That wasn't my reality. So I started the Caldum protocol and I fought through it. It was really physically tough on my body. And I think this is where I, started to realize that I had a co-infection because of the way my body was reacting to it. And like, it was, I it was getting these insane night sweats. It was making me really angry. Like I had all this like anger and I didn't know where that was coming from. And so, you know, that's when I realized like I probably had Babesia and that was a factor. And then I started to learn about co-infections. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just figured out that I've Lyme disease. What is this? So, you know, it was, it was like, it's so frustrating because it's so defeating, but you're also kind of motivated by figuring out these different pieces along the way. And I don't know, man, like I just kind of did it. I, I moved in with my parents for a period of time. I had, I owned like a penthouse two bedroom condo in DC and I moved out and moved in with my parents because I didn't. I wasn't confident that I would be able to manage the protocol and the effects of the protocol and the herxing on my own. Like I had also gone through, in addition to losing my brother, I had been engaged and the engagement had ended really badly. And like, I just, I was afraid to be alone. So I used the resources that I had and I started to, you know, pull people together to support me, but I finally kind of surrendered. And I was like, I can't do this on my own. This is not all my fault. This is not all my responsibility. Like 
these doctors can't fix me. And so like, I need a team around me. And I, I think at that point, I kind of went to my parents and was like, you have to help me figure this out. Like I'm going to like die or like my soul is going to die or like, I'm going to be better at impermanently. Like this is, there's not a good outcome here with the way things are going. Like I need more help. So Katie, talk to us about the Cowden protocol. We've heard from various guests. Some people have had great success with it and other people have said it really hasn't helped them much at all. And it sounds like it's a pretty aggressive protocol where you're taking herbal tinctures eight times a day. And it is aggressive as far as the toll it takes in your body from the Herxheimer reaction. So from your experience, was it a worthwhile effort to go through the entire Cowden protocol and, you know, really have to go through all that suffering with the Herxing? I don't know. How do we answer these questions? Like, it's so challenging to know, but I, again, like I needed something. And what I did feel, I'll say this, what I did feel is that the Calden protocol was less ultimately disruptive than the antibiotics. But, and this, if there's so many factors, right? Like it could have been that I did the antibiotics first and like that, that made it harder to get to like the, the core of what was going on. There's so many theories here, but I do feel that it was more natural and less ultimately disruptive to my system, but it was very hard. Like I don't remember having many good days during that period. So it was very mentally challenging because I felt very sick the large part of that protocol. Okay, talk to us about when you were done with the Cowden protocol, when you first started, you were at a very low point again. When you finished the Cowden protocol, how were you feeling? Were you feeling much better, a little bit better? I was feeling a little bit better. It was almost like I was like sweating out this disease, you know, like, but it wasn't going away. Like there was just like more layers and more layers and more layers and more layers. And I don't know if I even fully finished the Cowden protocol before I went back to the drawing board and was like, I need something else. I need someone else. Katie, when you say more layers, you mean more symptoms were popping up as a result of treating the Cowden protocol? Yes, exactly. Like feeling were there other symptoms that were dropping off? Because as you were treating one thing, they were dropping off, but new symptoms were popping up as, as you were treating, or was it pretty much primarily new symptoms were popping up, but you weren't getting that much better on the other end of it? I think I was getting a little less foggy in general. Like the fog was starting to clear. I think the physical, you know, body pain had lessened. Um, and when you're really, really sick, like you'll take anything you'll take 10% better, you know, like you'll, you'll, because that 10% better might help you get to 20% better and 20% might help you get to 30%. So, you know, I am someone who I think is very strong and I think you have to be strong, whether you're naturally strong or you build strength or you just decide to be strong to get through these experiences and to get creative and to be willing to go back to the drawing board a million times. Like, I mean, 
I, I, I talk about my five rules of life in my book, but one of them is to take giving up off the table. And like I said earlier, I think some of that mentality came from, you know, growing up in a, in a self-made family. But for me, I had to self-make my health and, you know, there wasn't a clear pathway. I kept getting like so many no's and so many closed doors but I kept getting back up and looking for an open door. So Katie, talk to us about what happened next. So after the Cowden Protocol, you found a doctor, Dr. William Vickers, who really saved your life, I believe, in your words. So talk to us about that transition and what you did next. So the weird thing is that the naturopath that I saw when I first saw him, I believe at our first meeting, he had mentioned this doctor, Dr. Vickers, and he said he has a really long wait list, but he can get rid of your Lyme. And I don't know why, maybe he said it was very expensive. I don't know what had me not move on that right away. Like that's the one thing I wish. I wish that I had moved faster on certain things rather than, you know, waiting and seeing what happened. Like with Lyme, there's no like waiting it out. Like it's just going to get worse, you know? And so I wish I had put my name on that wait list a lot sooner, but I didn't. And I had heard of this doctor through, you know, the previous doctor, the naturopath. And so when the Cowden protocol was like killing me, like, I just was like, this is a lot to deal with. I don't know if I, how much longer I can do this. I called their office and asked to put my name on the wait list. And they told me they had a nine month wait list. And I was like in, I remember like being in my parents' driveway, it was rain, it was pouring rain. And I had like this like breakdown moment. I really think I heard God speak to me, but you know, I, 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 I was just like, why? Like, why is this happening? Why is this what I'm dealing with? Like, I've been sick for all these years. I, I lost my brother, like why? And I, at the time, I know this sounds so crazy. And, and again, maybe I was like, just totally had lost it at that point, but I, I sort of like heard a voice, you know, not audible, like in the movies, but I heard something come back and say, you haven't decided yet. And I was like, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean? I haven't decided yet. And all of a sudden, you know, what I, what I saw was like my life go before me. I saw like myself getting married. I saw myself having kids. I saw myself traveling and speaking more and like being on stage and being in front of the camera. And I realized like, I hadn't decided that I was going to stay. Like I was sort of one foot in and one foot out on my own life. And, and this is like my perspective on my own healing, but I realized in that moment, like I do a lot of work with visioning and I believe that in order for us to have a certain result in our lives, we have to believe that it's in the realm of possibility. We have to be able to see it, right? And sometimes we see it in someone else and we're like, oh, that person did it, so I can do it. But I've never even taken one moment to envision myself as a healthy person. I had no vision of myself as a healthy person. And like, I was saying this on a podcast the other day, but they, they talk about this sometimes with like weight or weight loss that, you know, people say they want to lose weight and they get on these programs, 
but like so much of their identity is about the weight that they are right now. And so losing weight actually feels terrifying to your system because of the change. And because we're so comfortable, like our bodies and minds are comfortable with what is. And I realized like that I had become very comfortable, even though I was so uncomfortable and so unhappy and so like depressed and anxious and all these things, I was simultaneously so comfortable being sick. It had become such a big part of my identity. It was like the reason that I was able to get out of certain things that I didn't want to do. And saying, I don't feel good was like, just rolled right off the tongue. And I had never even taken a moment to envision like, what would it be like if Katie was not sick? And beyond that, if Katie was well, and beyond that, if I had like ultimate health, not just like if I was healthy, but if I like had ultimate health, like what would that look like? What would that feel like? And I really had to like try to let that I want to call it like a memory, but like it, it wasn't a memory. It's like a future memory, right? Like it's like a vision run through my body as like a possible outcome for myself. Because I was fighting this battle going from doctor to doctor to doctor. And I had kind of just gotten in the pace of that. Like that was my life. And even though I was only in my twenties, like that was like the, the dance I was doing. And so I had this breakdown breakthrough moment in the car, the rain was pouring down, the windshield was like, you know, back and forth. And I was like, like what was happening outside in nature with the rain, it was like a hard rain. And like, I started crying and like, I, start, I remember I started like snotting. Like I was like, I'm having like a full release right now, you know? But it felt like I finally understood at least this peace, this like spiritual for me, peace of you need to actually welcome, fully welcome the idea of being healthy. If that is what you say you want and you're going to have to give something up, you're going to have to give up being sick. You're going to have to find a new excuse when you don't want to go out and socialize. You're just going to have to say that like this can't be your identity if you want the possibility of health. And I was very concerned about like having kids. And there's a lot of information that says you can pass Lyme to a child, you know, through pregnancy. And like, so all of these things, like I, I couldn't get married being sick. Like I, I, I didn't, you know, I don't want to say something that like sounds really negative about being chronically ill, like that you can't have something if you are chronically ill, but I didn't see myself having the kind of marriage that I wanted to have, which was very active and very involved and very participatory if I was bedridden. Right. And so, and like, I like didn't have any prospects. So like I needed to go out and date and like, I wasn't in a place to go out and date. And so all these things I wanted marriage and kids and, you know, my career and finishing my book, like they weren't possible if I had like arthritis in my hands and couldn't type and, you know, couldn't conceive a child and all these things. 
So that was like my breakdown breakthrough moment where I realized like I needed to really, really, really do some work up here and change my mindset and start to really welcome this new Katie as a reality. Katie, once again, that was just beautiful and very well said. So we'd like to learn what treatment you did with Dr. Vickers now after having this epiphany that allowed you to get to where you are today, which is pretty much you have your life back. So they told me like, I, you know, I would take me nine months to get in. I have my breakdown God moment in the car and I get an email a couple days later that says, can you come in next week? So they had told me there was a nine month wait list and all of a sudden they had an opening. Like this was where I felt like, oh my God, something shifted inside of me and something shifted in the world. And like, even though I don't have control, maybe I do. So I go see them, you know, they basically had said that Dr. Victor Vicker sat me down. He said, your Lyme is really bad, but I think we can get rid of it completely. And I'm like, completely like, I've never heard this before. Like, what do you mean? And he's like telling me about his success rate and his experiences and what they do. And, um, you know, he, he had said something like that because of the antibiotics, you know, it was going to, because of, of the antibiotics, there was more healing that needed to be done to my system, but maybe I did need them at the time. We don't know, but that I was going to have to go through a rigorous treatment protocol. And I said, how long is this going to take? And he said, he said, I don't know. He wouldn't promise me a timeline, but I was 29 and I had a personal goal that by the time I was 30, I wanted to be Lyme free. And so, you know, I started weekly treatments and it ranged from IV, all IVs pretty much, but IVs of lipids to clear out my system, really high dose vitamin C, which was kind of working as an antibiotic at a high dose. And then hydrogen peroxide, like a very pure form of hydrogen peroxide that I would receive IV treatments of. And then, you know, again, a detox protocol to help minimize herxing. And so, you know, he gave me some different tinctures that, that I was supposed to take and, and that I did take. And I still was doing like my Epsom salt baths and doing some binders and things like that. But I was right. I, you know, right before my, my 30th birthday, I got my final treatment and I was declared Lyme free. Okay, now talk to us about how your change in mindset on this journey, the spiritual moment that you described, became something that now taught you who you were and taught you how you could now scale that to help other people. Yeah, I mean, I realized that, like, right, when you have a chronic illness, and I think with Lyme in particular, so many of us struggle with, like, it's all in my head. And it certainly wasn't all in my head, but there was a part of it that was in my head. And so it was like coming to this realization that like the doctors aren't right, but like there is a piece here where my mindset and my desire does play a massive role. And, you know, I had to recognize that and I had to make decisions based upon that. And I had to like become more fierce about my healing. Like 
I think like some of my, my privilege in the way I grew up, like I, I sort of had this belief that life should be easy, even though the people around me were really hard workers and I always worked and had jobs and all of that. Like, you know, I, I don't think until I got into this journey that I realized how many people struggle whether it's with Lyme or something else, like life is challenging. And sometimes you think you figured it out and then you get hit with something else. And so I just think it built so much character for me. I I remember I have this one memory and I tell a story in my book, but it was like, I was um, seeing Dr. Vickers, but like there was very much like um, an end in sight, right? And I remember I was laying in my bed And my dad was like on the floor, like on his iPad, like probably playing solitaire or something, right? Like just mindlessly like there, but like talking to me because I'm like 29 years old living at my parents' house, but I have my own, it's just a weird time for me. And my dad was kind of hanging out and he's like, Katie, honestly, like, I think it's time to lift the curse. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, you know, you grew up, you had everything, you went to Vanderbilt, like, you come from a good family, like life has been too easy for you. Like now you're actually interesting. Like now you've actually overcome something. Like now this life coaching career that you're creating for yourself has more depth and has more meaning. Like who wants to hear from like a girl who like grew up in a good family and went to Vanderbilt, like about their life challenges. And so, you know, it's kind of a, a, a silly little memory, but you know, my dad was basically saying like, you know, that if you change the way you look at all of this stuff that's happened and you actually accept it and you allow it to be a tool in your toolbox and a story in your book, then you have a lot more power in the situation. And so that was the mindset that I took. And that was the mindset that I brought to my work and my speaking engagements and my books, like, so that I could tell my story and hopefully help more people overcome whatever they're going through, whether it's Lyme or something else where there doesn't seem to be an answer. My belief is just don't, don't take that for truth. You get to choose your truth. And I really do feel that like where there is a will, there is a way. It just might take a while. So Kenny, let's talk a little bit more about this. It's all in your head thing, right? I mean, look, I understand having you know, participated in almost 200 podcasts on Lyme disease at this point, that that is a trigger, right? It's a trigger because people are gaslit on a regular basis. But what makes me concerned about that trigger is that it doesn't allow people to have the epiphany that you've had, right? Because it's a trigger and because it stops all, um, all inquiry, people in many cases get stuck in their own mind. They get stuck in this victim's mindset. And because they're stuck in the victim's mindset, they are stuck in their head. It is all in their head and they can't get better. Right. Well, I had this breakthrough. So talk to us about your breakthrough and talk to us about this epiphany. And let's talk about how do we disrupt this challenge that first we get invalidated we then hold on to triggers about something being on our head and it makes it even harder for us to get out of this mindset that doesn't allow us to visualize 
a healthy outcome. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about this in my book, but I say like, you know, you might feel like a victim because you are right. Like a lot of us actually are a victim to something, whether it's like, you know, Lyme or something else. But I decided that I wanted to be, I wanted to also be a victor and that I wanted to survive and thrive. And I think that the mistake that our culture makes is like, you're either one or the other, you're either a victim or you're a hero, right? And I think that we have to allow ourselves to have both. Like it's not just in your body or just in your head, like everything is connected. So it's not that we're imagining things, but our mind is trying to land on what's wrong and it can't land yet. And so it makes us feel out of sorts. It makes us feel crazy. It makes us feel like there is no answer. Like the brain needs things to make sense. And so, you know, I, I agree with you. I think it's really, really hard. I think it's really nuanced. Like, but what I do think is that it's worth taking a look in the mirror for all of us and saying, you know, is there a piece of me that's gotten comfortable with this, right? Whatever you're going through, is there a piece of me that is sort of, a, you know, attached to or comfortable with the identity of being sick? Like, and if the answer is no, then take it or leave it. I'm not saying this is how it is for everyone, but that was something that ended up really helping me because I realized I had gotten a little too comfortable and it was time to shake things up again. But you know, Katie, I think there has to be a second level of inquiry. And that is not only have I become comfortable there, but am I surrounding myself with other people who are helping me to feel comfortable there? Meaning other people in the community who are suffering from Lyme disease, whose mindset is not necessarily healthy or other people in my life who are supporting me when I'm feeling this victim identity. Yeah. You know, I spend a lot of time alone, like both alone with my thoughts and just like physically alone because I am very sensitive and I can easily get swayed by other people's moods, by other people's, you know, opinions. And I'm constantly like, what do I actually think? What do I actually feel? And I, I think you hit on such a great point because we have to really manage our boundaries and be aware of what makes us feel better and what makes us feel worse. And the other really interesting concept that I came around to in my healing journey was this concept of dosing, right? So when we take medicine, like let's just use like Tylenol, for example, if you have a headache, maybe you take like one, you know, pill of Tylenol, you don't take 10, right? Like, so there's this like dosing. And so I realized like there were certain friends or like time with my family that like there were do there were doses, right? And I had to shift the dosing of whatever I was putting into my life based on what was going on within me. But I think we see things so like black or white, like so extreme, like either I can't have any of this or I need all of it. And for me, it was about like really being present with and conscious of the amount of things I was allowing into my life. Like, for example, like I've talked about this a lot, but I'm very, I don't want to say strict, but like, I guess strict is probably a good word. I'm very strict about my diet, but I'm very aware of it. And yet I'm also very aware of the fact that if I don't let myself go out to dinner with friends, or if I am with company and 
I can't eat anything. Or, you know, if I'm, if I'm like, that takes me in another direction that is not good for me. And so it's about really like looking at each decision you're making in your life and trying to figure out, okay, for me, what is ultimate health and what is the range of, you know, for a long time, like I didn't drink like alcohol. I felt like I was hungover for 10 years. That's like my best way to describe how I felt when I had Lyme. I just felt hungover all the time. And so why would I want to drink alcohol if I, that like, it basically makes me, it basically gives me like PTSD, right? So now like I, I might drink like one drink a month or something. And I, I decide like when I want to do that, like when I'm out with friends or with family or celebrating something because not drinking at all for me is just not like, I, I feel like I'm missing out on something that I want to experience with other people. And I'm using all of these examples, like they don't need to be taken literally, but it's just the essence of understanding, like you're not a victim, you have control and you have control over the levels of things that you allow into your life. You don't have to like either do this or not do this. There might be some things in your healing journey that like are absolute no's, right? Like some, a person might be very toxic for you or a work environment. We talked about that earlier, might be an absolute no, but you know, I think a lot of people like, you know, a lot of people when they're going through chronic illness, like they can't work or they lose their job. And what I found at least with my career path is that like, coaching has allowed me to be able to work from home and work over the phone. And, you know, when I was really sick, I wasn't doing things over video. I wish, and that was okay. And I actually made a lot of money and have built a career for myself. Like, I I, I don't want to just sit here and brag, but I do want to say like, you know, I built a multi-million dollar business while I was sick. Like that's kind of wild. You wouldn't think that. And so when I talk to prospective students and they're like, well, I don't have any money and I can't work. And you know, is that actually true for you? It's different for every single person. Well, let's but pause there for a second, Katie. Let's pause there for yeah. a second. Because I would argue you built a multi-million dollar business only because you were sick. Had you not been sick, you probably would not have been able to build that business because before that you were just a member of the Lucky Sperm Club. And then you went through this experience that your father pointed out to you that allowed you to now have the tools that you needed to share with other people and to scale so that by helping them and suffering through your experience, you are now able to turn that into a very successful entrepreneurial pursuit. Yeah, that I that hit me hard. I, I have some tears welling up right now. Yeah, you're right. You know, but I had to make a lot of decisions every single day every single day and sometimes many moments throughout the day about what I was capable of in that moment, in that day. You know, I, I often had the conversation with myself of, I would hear like, I can't. And then I would respond with, well, what can you do? You know, what can you do? And that was massively profound for me because you know, in my world, there's a lot of like being on video and being on camera and being in, on Instagram. And some days I was not available for that. But then I would think like, okay, then I can't do anything. And then I can't. And then my mind would get into this really bad, toxic place, but I would interrupt it. And I would say, Katie, what can you do? 
And there were always things that I could do. And maybe I needed to take a bath first or sleep a, li a little later or take a whole day off or whatever. But I, I kind of like play chess with myself and work the pieces so that I can have the life that I want to have. And so that your mind wouldn't control you and your survival software wouldn't put you in a position where you were paralyzed, right? And that's exactly what you're now doing now in your business, which has allowed you to have the success that you've had, right? So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what caused Katie to go from being the woman who made the decision that she was no longer going to be sick, who visualized what a healthy person would look like, who achieved that goal and then wanted to share that experience with other people. How did that happen? Well, it happened like very step-by-step, step, but I will say like my, my whole life, I've always felt like I had a greater calling and I wanted to help people. I didn't know what that would look like. And I had started my coaching career before I got diagnosed. So I already had a couple of years under my belt when I got diagnosed, like a year and a half. And, um, you know, actually it's really interesting that you say it the way that you did, but you're right. I, I actually made a decision to scale my business because I didn't know how available I would be. And I didn't want to create a business, which is often very common in like the personal branding, training, coaching world. I didn't want to create like Katie DePaula coaching. I wanted to create something that could be operated by anyone that would allow me to build a team that wasn't solely dependent upon me. And so, you know, I scaled my, I had a scaling mindset because of my health issues. And I think that has rewarded me so much because I let other people lead. You know, like I never felt like I need to be the leader and everyone needs to listen to me. And I never felt like that. You know, this is my intellectual property. I was kind of like, I feel very called to do this. I have a lot going on in my life and I'm going to need a team. And I want to surround myself with other women who are strong, who can lead. And, you know, there were times where I had to take time off work or I'd be in and out of doctor's appointments. I mean, that was my reality. So I had to build a business to your point that really worked with what I did have, not what I didn't have. So talk to us about what inspired you to focus on women in your business. I mean, I just, I mean, obviously I am a woman and I felt when I went through my coaching trip, my coach training certification, that one of the things I really saw as a gap was teaching women how to sell and market their businesses in a way that felt like them, right? Like I, I had a lot of clients and most of the people that I, that were attracted to working with me were women in the very beginning, I worked with men and women, but it was still a majority women. So I was doing all this like market research. I was getting paid to do market research in my coaching business because I was getting paid to talk to people and listen to their problems. And then I was being exposed to what problems young women have. And I was learning that a lot of them felt like they didn't have purpose. 
a lot of them were dealing with chronic illness, whether, you know, Lyme is one thing, but there's a lot of things that women deal with um, chronically and they wanted a way to work that they weren't getting so burnt out. I was attracting a lot of very high achieving women that were living these high stress lives and they were burning out and they were having breakdowns or they were having to like take time off work or these really extreme things were happening because their bodies were not agreeing with their lifestyle and their pace of life. And so, you know, like they were basically their lives were becoming immune disrupting events and it was causing whatever natural thing was in their system to flare up and to start to run the show. And so I, I was just listening. I was just listening and responding to what was being brought to me. And I felt that, you know, a lot of these women also wanted to start their own businesses, but they were very afraid. They didn't want to seem like used car salesmen. They didn't want to, you know, be like reaching out like a network marketing company, like trying to sell products to every person who they knew, right? They wanted it to be very them and they wanted it to be authentic. And so I started to coach those women. And then I started to build a curriculum around that and understand like, okay, here's the process that a lot of us as women are going through. What are the specific solutions that are needed? And how do I make this not just individualized, but a system? And that's how we built a curriculum and a training. And you saw the pattern that all of these women were presenting as a pattern that you had seen in your own experience. And because you had gone through your own experience and you'd overcome your own challenges, you were able to use your experiences as somebody who had to deal with Lyme disease and take responsibility for her Lyme disease to ultimately be the pattern that would help all of these other people get out of the challenges that they were facing. Absolutely. And I will say, I think also having Lyme for so long gave me that research mindset, gave me that look for the pattern mindset where that's a very natural thing for me now. I'm very, I've become so intuitive and I do think that my years of being sick brought that to me. And so that's kind of a hidden gift. Not hidden anymore, Katie. Thank God we had you uh, on the podcast to talk about these things. So talk to us about your business. What's the name of your business and how can folks connect with you if they'd like to work with you? Yeah. So my company is called Inner Glow Circle. It's a coaching certification school for women. Uh, We train and certify women to become life coaches. So, you know, whether they want to be health coaches or marketing coaches or relationship coaches or you know, whatever niche they choose. We have Lyme disease coaches or chronic illness coaches. Um, They can go through our training program and we teach you how to coach anyone around anything. And, you know, I, we started the business in 2015. So it's been almost seven years now and it's been a credible journey. You can find us at innerglowcircle.com very simply um, or of course on Instagram, you can find at inner glow circle or at it's Katie DePaula. So Katie, talk to us about your book, what inspired you to write the book and, uh, where people can get it if they'd like to learn more about you and your journey through your book. Yeah. So the e- easiest place to get my book is just on Amazon. It's called at least you look good learning to glow through what you go through. And at least you look good was something that people would say to me. And I had a a very specific experience where I went to see a psychiatrist and 
she said to me, how are you feeling? And I said, I feel terrible. All the medications you've been trying me on are making me feel so sick. This is not going well. And she said, well, you look really good. And I'm thinking, you're a psychiatrist. Why are you saying that? Right. But the reality was I did look really good. I was wearing like a white crop top and like these tight red leggings and I had hoop earrings and I had just gotten a spray tan. Like my point is that, you know, I, and I talk about this in my book, but I focused a lot on how I looked because it was one of the only things I could control. And it was something that helped me feel that there was balance in my life, that everything was going to be okay. If I, if I looked like things were okay, but it was like this dual thing because also people didn't believe me. And so, you know, whatever you're going through, you're not necessarily going to look like you're going through it, right? Like people would say, you don't look like your brother just died. I'm thinking, what the heck does it look like to have just lost somebody, you know? But they didn't see me at my weakest moments. They weren't there when I was like, you know, taking three baths a day or when I couldn't get out of bed on certain days or like those days were certainly there, but I'm not one of those people that likes to focus on the hard parts of my life. There's enough hard stuff going on, like in my life and in the world that you can't avoid it, that I don't need to dramatize it. I don't, I don't want that to be my highlight that I'm showing with showing people. Like, I feel like people get it, you know, and I wrote about a lot of the hard stuff in my book, but now I really want to focus on the good things and the positive things and to help myself keep going and growing and tell these stories but do it in a way that encourages people to get to whatever outcomes they want to get to, whatever that is. So let's talk about outcomes as our, as our closing question. If, um, if your fiance came walking into your room after this podcast and he had a tick biting him on his leg, what would you recommend that he do so that he would have the outcome that we would all wish for him? And that is that he wouldn't become chronically ill from Lyme disease. I would, I told you I did some research on this. So talk um, to us about the research you did um, and uh, where, uh, where folks can find the research that you are located. Okay, so I found an article online from UpToDate and um, it's a subscription-based resource designed to provide physicians access to current clinical information. So this means this is smart information, but you know, I would, I would help him remove the tick you're supposed to pull backwards gently, but firm using even steady pressure. You don't jerk or twist it, right? Cause you don't want any of like what's inside the tick to like explode and get into your body. You're not supposed to squeeze it or crush it or puncture it. Like you want the tick to stay intact because the, the infection comes from the bodily fluids inside of the tick. This is so gross. So after you remove the tick, you want to wash the skin, all your hands, probably take a full shower and really scrub yourself down thoroughly. And then whether or not symptoms develop, go see your doctor immediately. Um, I personally would probably go with my partner and say, can we get him on you know, something right away, um, an, a preventative antibiotic? Uh, you can look, remember that you can ask your doctor for something you don't, they don't have to say yes, you can discuss it, but you can say something like, I'd really like to get on an antibiotic preventatively. Is that something we could discuss? 
just because the doctor doesn't suggest it or recommend it doesn't mean that it's not a good idea. You get to play an active role in your healing process. So, you know, and then the other thing to know that this article says, and I don't know if this is like God's word or not, but it does say that blood testing right away is probably not going to show Lyme disease, which I do, you know, most of what I've read confirms that. So if you go to the doctor and you get a blood test and it's negative, what we want, what I want you to know is like, that doesn't mean you're in the clear. And I would also say, pay very, very close attention to how you feel in the days, weeks, and months after that bite, because what can happen is you can get the bacteria in your body. Like from what I understand, a lot of people have Lyme bacteria in their body, but a lot of people, I don't know if it's proper to say they're immune to it or if it's just not impacting them in the way it impacts other people. And like Rich and Matt were saying, right, there can be these immune disrupting events that cause something that's kind of been latent in your system to come to the surface and then be quite active. So, um, you know, you, you could get bit and not notice anything for months later, not put those two things together. But I want you to remember, like, I got bit on this date, take some notes and really track how you feel. And if you start to experience like random symptoms, whether it's stomach aches or headaches or chills or fever, or, you know, at this point, you probably are going to think you have COVID, but it's also worth like exploring, do I have Lyme disease? So just stay on top of it. Stay on top of it. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Katie DePaula. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Katie DePaula, please visit her Instagram page at Inner Glow Circle. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to offer to us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews you share with us. Thank you for listening.